and and loving us and and not letting go of us when you had every every right because of the way that we destroyed and 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 brought uh, havoc into your good your good creation father you had every right to kick us to the curb but in loving kindness because of that that faithfulness that loyalty to the highest degree of devotion in your righteousness father your son came and and paid the price for our our crimes against creation and and especially against your holiness and majesty and and we are moved father that, that You love us in such a way that in love this, this Son came forth and, and, and bore our sin in such a way that, that we are justified and You see us with His righteousness as our clothing. As, as we study tonight, Father, this passage that deals with the resurrection and the greatness of our, our, our hope and our, our future, uh, we're asking, Father, that You bless us with eyes that see and ears that hear. For we do ever so much want to know this passage and to have it, Father, embedded and concrete in our heart in such a way that we are revolutionized and, and changed in the way that we approach every day from here on out. So bless us this way, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a statement that I think everybody would agree with. The statement is, it's up on the screen, how you live in the present depends on what you believe about the future. Let me say that again. How you live in the present depends on what you believe about the future. Let me give you an example. There are two women who are working the same tedious, mundane job. The first woman is told that at the end of the year she is going to be paid $150 for her work. The second woman is told that at the end of the year, for the exact same job, for the exact same mundane work, she is going to be, ta- be paid $150 million for her work. Now here's the question. Do you think there is a difference in the way that they will face their daily work? Absolutely. Uh, down the road at uh, Baylor University, there's a, a professor by the name of Rodney Stark who has written a couple of good books on how the early church uh, uh, was swept through the Roman Empire and all of the great urban settings. And one of the things that Dr. Stark writes is that the incredible growth of the early church was tied to the way that it addressed at least three issues. The first was epidemics. When smallpox and other epidemics hit the cities, the Christians stayed and nursed the sick, often becoming ill themselves and dying. Uh, There's a letter that I've read from uh, about 260 A.D., from the 3rd century, uh, that I've read to you many times. I want to read it again as a reminder of of the kind of spirit, the kind of uh, perspective these early Christians had when it came to ministering to the sick in these great urban centers. Uh, This letter, uh, uh, this Easter letter says, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Now, uh, this, the, the same author of this letter describes how non-believers, non-Christians, responded to these same epidemics. He writes, They pushed the sufferers away, they fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. Now, we want to believe that what this guy is writing is absolutely true, but how do we know that this is credible reporting? 
this is credible reporting of how the early disciples responded and it's seen in the way that the Emperor Julian's campaign a century later to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christians. Because the Christians were shaming the empire in the way that they were acting charitably towards those that needed that kind of love and that kind of ministry. Julian loathed the Christians and he called them impious Galileans but he clearly recognized their massive ministry among the sick and among the poor. So you have the epidemics, but you also have this, this area of persecutions. The Christians did not retaliate with violence, with calling down curses on the heads of their executioners. If you want some examples of that, you can read the Maccabean literature as they did it in the first century B.C., about 150 B.C. or so. But instead, the Christians in the early church, even though they were being utterly and profoundly persecuted for their faith, they prayed for their enemies. The third area was the national borders of countries being opened up by the Roman Empire, which led to the first instance in, in history of globalization. And what was happening during this period of time in the known world was that the cities were becoming multi-ethnic. And cities were now being made up of lots of different ethnic groups, many of them displaced, many of them disconnected from their extended families, which would lead to tensions and, 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 and issues and, and, uh, and, and lots of problems. Yet the church was that one entity inside of these, these cities that would bring all of these people together into one family. Now, one of the, the points that Stark says uh, about all of this is that these were the primary ways by which the early church experienced its great growth. So here's the question. Why was the early church compassionate and forgiving and hospitable and welcoming? Why was the early church, why were the doors open and the arms open in spite of all of the persecution, in spite of the epidemics, in spite of all of the, the cultural and ethnic differences that, that were brewing and, and, and marinating in these cities, why were they kind and gentle and open and generous? It was because they believed in a certain kind of a biblical future. The, the pagans had not a clue. The pagans had had complete uncertainty at, at, at times about what to believe about the afterworld. They didn't, they didn't know what to believe about the future. There are hints of it in Homer and, and, and Plato and other places, but, but, but the pagans, for the most part, were very uncertain as to what the, the, the world to come would be like. But Christians, on the other hand, believed that they would be surrounded at all times in this life and the life to come by God's loving presence. And so they were able to stay in the cities and they were able during those epidemics to minister to people. And they loved people and they cared for people in these epi epidemics because they believed that one day they would see God's face. And they were able to forgive their executioners rather than retaliate because they believed that God would put everything to the right at the end of time. The Greeks and the Romans really had no concept of this final judgment. They were pretty much vague on the afterlife and they would... You know, they, uh, they, they could, as a church, with this kind of a worldview, they could be welcoming of everyone regardless of gender or race because they believed that there was this one God who was over all people. Christians were completely different. So how could they be certain of such a future? How could they be certain that it was glory and that it was love and that it was blessings and family and unity and not a, a, a hint 
of destruction are the issues that they were facing in this life. The key was the resurrection. And in the text that, uh, that Mark read just a minute ago, we, we see that there is a certainty of that kind of future in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 10, and the shape of that future is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 through 58. Let's spend just a couple of minutes talking about them. First, the resurrection gives certainty to God's future. This is seen in verses 1 and 10, but especially verses 4 through 6. Listen again as I read them. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, the question is for us, how does this certainty work? Well, you know as well as I do, the typical modern Western person is going to say that ancient people were more open to these kinds of things, this, these kinds of phenomena, because they were able to believe in things like the resurrection. But today we live in this modern age. We live in a scientific age, and we do not believe that the bodily resurrection can happen. Our worldview will not let us believe such a thing. But here's the thing. That kind of statement that we modern Western people make really betrays a profound ignorance about the first century world. The Greeks and the Romans were Platonian in their views of things, which meant that the body, which was material, was really kind of sick. It was a terrible thing. It, material was bad. It was the spirit that was good. Death, if anything, was a liberation of that soul. But the idea of a bodily resurrection that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 as a good thing, that was ridiculous. And then you have, on the other side of the coin, you have the Jews who, who believe that God would probably, would probably, according to Scripture, bring about the renewal of the world and this mass resurrection at the end of history, but an individual resurrection in the middle of history, the first century, that was impossible. I mean, how could Jesus, in their thinking, how could Jesus be the Messiah? And he had resurrected if disease is continuing and death is continuing and injustice in the world is continuing. I mean, how can you have a resurrection in the middle of history and nothing change? And the Jewish mind, absolutely ludicrous. It's silly. It was impossible and implausible to the, to the people of Jesus' day for this resurrection to happen as it was and is to ours. There was no room in their minds for it. Their, their worldview was every bit as impervious as ours to the idea of the resurrection. Not that somebody hit death and bounced back, but that God, somebody had died, and God actually squeezed them to the other side, to squeeze them through death to the other side, to a different kind of body and existence. So how did it happen? How did they come to believe this in such and such utterly profound convictions that it changed the world. Well, we know at least three things for sure happened. There were witnesses. There were witnesses. There were hundreds and hundreds of people who said that they saw Jesus resurrected, that it wasn't a vision, that it was literally being in the presence of someone that they could touch. 
And some of these had one-on-one encounters. Some met him in a group. There were some who had multiple encounters. And they all said the same thing. And that was, we saw him. For 40 days, they saw him. And notice that in verse 6, Paul says that in in some of these, these cases, these witnesses who were saying, we saw him, were still alive. Now, why in the world did he write that? Why would he say, yeah, there were about 500 and some of those are even still alive to this day. I mean, why write that? It was so that you could go and talk to them and hear them say with their own mouths that I saw him resurrected, that I saw him alive, and it's true. And notice that one of the things that Luke says Jesus was doing during the 40 days that he remained on earth out of Acts chapter 1, verse 3, is that he showed himself to these men And he gave them many convincing, what? Proofs that he was, what? Alive. Forty days. Forty days. Which leads to a second thing. Not only were there these eyewitnesses who saw it and and testified to the fact, but there was a worldview revolution that took place. A worldview revolution seemingly Overnight, there were literally thousands of converts to Christianity out of worldviews that had no room for the resurrection. Now, think for a moment. I mean, we all have worldviews. Think about what a worldview is. It is, it is sort of a philosophical view and a, a philosophical understanding of the universe. A worldview helps you to understand how things work. And because they are created over space and time, they do not change overnight, but they change over time. And yet overnight, thousands of Jews and Gentiles began to believe something that everyone thought up to that point was impossible, that a man had died and had resurrected to a new life. I mean, they did not compute. And this is what they said to their neighbors. The very thing that we thought was impossible has happened. And I'm an eyewitness to it. I've seen it. And the depth of the worldview change is seen also in this third thing, which is they died for their faith. By the droves, by the handfuls, they died. They lived sacrificial lives and they died happily confessing that they had seen the risen Savior. So think, what does all of this mean? If you say that your worldview does not allow you to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you also have to recognize that neither did theirs. And will you not let your worldview be honestly challenged the way that theirs was? And the reason to think about that is is this very thing. Do you want what they had when they were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum? They prayed, and they sang with the certainty of what the future was going to look like for them. Not a day, quite frankly, in in the United States of America, in Texas, in 2012, we don't face lions, but you know we face something else, don't we? We don't face lions, but we face lumps. The doctor says that you have to have a biopsy because you might have cancer. How do you handle that? Do you not want to deal with it the way that people who said Jesus resurrected from the dead dealt with it? And and let's be practical here. I mean, how do you handle that kind of a scenario? Here's how they got it. 
It was not through positive mental attitude exercises. They didn't through, uh, do it through wishful thinking. You know, I'd like to, to, to believe that the resurrection is true. They got it not through wishful thinking, but through thinking. They asked, why do all of these people believe this thing really happened? Because of a hoax? People don't die for a hoax. Especially if they're the ones that are creating it. You have to think about it and you have to be challenged. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to generate a certainty on the inside, which leads to a second thing. Not only did the resurrection give certainty to God's future and that we were a part of it and that it was glorious and beautiful, but it also gave shape to it. The resurrection gives shape to God's future. The last couple of minutes that we want to think about this, is we're really going to think about four things about God's future. The first is that in the future there is a stingless uh, death that is uh, described as the defeat of death. There is the swallowed death. There is the material newness. And finally there is the, the true or the new you. First, the stingless death. Here is one of the most famous passages out of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The word sting is, is a, a very, I don't want to say it's a technical word, but it's a very specific word. It refers to a scorpion sting that is lethal. It, it was a poisonous sting, really. And Paul says, where, O death, is your poisonous lethal sting? And what is important to realize here is that it is not the sting or the bite that kills you. It is the poison in the sting that does it. And, and Paul tells us what that is. The sting or the poison of death is sin. It is the sin that kills you. It is the, that, that, that undeletable thing that is in your microchip that, that can never be done away with by you. That is the thing that kills you. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's think of, of death maybe as annihilation. When you die, there's nothing ever again. Just gone forever. Yet You'll never know anything. You won't feel anything. It won't even be like sleep that you never wake out of with the, the dreams, good or bad. It's annihilation. Now, if that were true, then people could approach their, their own death, their, their own death, bravely and courageously. We live and then we die, and then we're extinct. The problem is that no one has ever proved one way or another what's on the other side. Can you be sure, really, I mean deep down, can you be sure that there's not a judgment? And so death, because of that, 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 uh, that, that unknown, the darkness that covers our mind when it comes to death, death has become frightening, and that's why we're, we're scared. If you, you, you can't, then there is poison in your soul. And the poets and the philosophers also agree that, that we're afraid of death and that we struggle with this, this beyond. Uh, all of us know the, 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 the to be or not to be uh, speech by Hamlet. But listen to the rest of that speech. He says, To grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. 
The question is, how do you get rid of that sting? And what Paul says is that it's with the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone wonders if there is really something on the other side, and the Bible says there is. It's judgment. And that Jesus took it upon Himself. I mean, do you remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter swings the sword and takes off the ear of the high priest's servant? What is it that Jesus says? He doesn't say, well done, swing some more, does He? He says, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? That's John chapter 18. So what does He mean by all of that cup drinking and put away your sword? He is saying that He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear that judgment. That's what it meant to, to, to drink that cup. And, and how do you know that Jesus bore that judgment successfully and came out the other side? It's the resurrection. The blessing that Jesus received in resurrection is that stamp of approval. It's God's stamp saying, paid in full. Have you ever thought about why you keep your receipts? I mean, even if there wasn't an, an, an IRS I mean, you'd keep those receipts because every once in a while you have to prove that something had been paid for, right? About, uh, about eight years ago, uh, I had taken Jordan over to Rolling Oaks Mall to buy a belt, and we, we bought one, and the lady handed me the receipt. I put it in my wallet, and uh, we left, and Jordan uh, needed to put the belt on, so we stepped into the men's room, and Jordan took out the belt and began to put it on, and about a minute later, a security guard came into that men's room with a gentleman behind him, and he grabbed my son. That's a dangerous thing to do. And said, young man, did you steal that belt? Where's the receipt? And I'm standing next to him. He didn't even look at me. And I said, I'm the father. I've got the receipt. And as soon as I said, I've got the receipt, the guy that accused him turned around and left. It's the guard with Steph, you know, uh, stuck there holding the bag. But the resurrection, theologically speaking, is that receipt that has been paid in full. And you know what it means that it's paid in full? It means that death is now stingless. Death may bite you. Death may bite you, but the sting of the poison is gone. It can't wipe you out. And then after that, there's the swallowed death. Notice, notice, you know, and I've, 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 I've thought about this uh, for, for years, wonder what it meant. Uh, you know, Paul says that death is swallowed up. It, it, he doesn't say that death just magically disappears. And I think what he's getting at is... Uh, Think, think about the most beautiful piece of pecan pie sitting on a table. There are two ways that you can get it off of the table. One is to sweep it off the table and into the trash, which is a, a shame and maybe even a sin. The other is to eat it, and it becomes a part of you. And because, yeah, No, no guilt with pecan pie. <laughs> you eat the pecan pie, and it enhances you. It makes you more beautiful. <laughs> it makes you smarter. You know, <laughs> you know, some years ago, and I've told you this illustration before uh, on a couple of occasions, you know, there was, a, there was a time when I was traveling to Israel towards the end of the 1990s a couple of times, and, and I, was in, I was in Israel uh, in Tiberias and uh, was staying at a, at, a, at a nice hotel where we were, we were, we were uh, beautiful beds, comfortable beds, we were sleeping really well, but there was one night that I had this horrible dream. And maybe it was because of all the great Hebrew food. I don't know. But in that dream, I lost Ellen. Lost her. 
And, and when I woke up, I, it was, you know those dreams, those nightmares that you have where you can't tell the difference between, I mean, you know that sort of that it was a dream, but you're still a little unsettled until you can make sure that everything's okay. It was one of those kinds of nightmares. And I was troubled all that day until I was able to call Ellen on the phone and to make sure that she was okay. And when I heard her on the phone, it was like being able to breathe for the first time after staying underwater just one second longer than you can hold your breath. And and my eyes teared up with joy. And having gotten her back, as it were, the experience of restoration was made sweeter by the experience of loss. It was like the experience of losing her was swallowed up in the experience of receiving her again, which made it infinitely sweeter to hear her voice. Now, I know that's kind of lame and a dim experience of it. But if the resurrection happened, and it did, and if we will experience the resurrection, and we will, then everything terrible that's ever happened to us, that's sad, that's horrific, that, that, that has ever hurt us and wounded us, all of that is going to be swallowed up in that victory, making it sweeter. And to me, quite frankly, that sounds like the ultimate defeat of evil and death and suffering. And w- w- one of the questions I'm asked from time to time is why does Jesus still have the wounds on his hands and feet with the resurrected body? And the only answer I think that I have that even comes close to maybe being right is that the hands, the, the wounds in the hands and the feet have become a part of his glory. The resurrection is not a consolation prize for bearing up under tough circumstances. The resurrection is the thing which leads to this material newness. In, in verse 54, Paul writes, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Notice that the perishable does not put on the immaterial, but the imperishable. I think about this a lot, and it's still astounding to me. It means that you and I will blossom in places that we never knew that we had buds. And you will be, you know, what, uh, what you will be then compared to what you are now is like what you are now compared to a rutabaga or a turnip. You will be perfect and immortal. And then finally, there is the true you. Verse 49, Paul says, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. There is a core that all of us here have that is covered up in the gunk of this present age. But when you are planted in the resurrection, then you become what you were always meant to be. Isn't that what John says in 1 John chapter 3? We shall, beco- be, uh, uh, we shall become like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Meaning that we will become all that we were meant to be and created to be in the first place. Well, that's, that's enough on the resurrection for tonight. But the resurrection is, some of the, is, is, is one of the sweetest truths of the entire Bible. 
I, I think of, of I think of the pain that parents feel when their child is hurt or there's a, an abnormality or there's something that uh, that has taken place in that child's body that they're 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 not healthy and they're not strong and 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 they're certainly not uh, not what they were supposed to look like. And I think about the joy of being able to see those children, <coughs> those children in the resurrection, the way that God always meant for them to be. And I think about all of the good people that I've known. I mean, when it comes to the terrible people of this planet, I, you know, we don't struggle with the terrible things that might happen to them the way that we do with people that we love and we know that are genuinely, authentically trying to be good people. And yet, the cancers take their bodies. And they can't breathe, a lot of them, because of what happens to their lungs. Or they can't see, or they can't hear, or they can't enjoy people the way that they used to. And I think about that time on the other side of death, when no one wears wristwatches ever again because time doesn't matter. And to see them in the body that God meant for them to have, the resurrected body. And to know that there's not any veil between them and us uh, and God ever again because it's been removed, because Jesus has borne it all. And we've been justified and we are clothed in His righteousness. And the way that God responds to us and relates to us and thinks about us and feels about us has all changed because we've been justified. And to know that that there's nothing that happens in this life that separates us from that kind of love. That, that even if we experience death, the sting of it, the poison of it, which is sin, has been taken away so that we, we, are, not, we are not killed completely, spiritually, by it. It fills me with, with, a, with a hope and an enthusiasm for the kinds of things that we've been called to do as a church like I've never known in my entire life. To know that that great reunion and that great feast and that great eternity and that, that great resurrected glorified body and the presence of all of our brothers and sisters and friends and families that have gone on before us sitting down at that great banquet table in the presence of God Himself in the presence of God Himself. Can you imagine sharing a meal with the Creator of the universe? The resurrection, my friends. The resurrection's the show. And don't ever forget it. Uh, ben is going to lead us in a song. And uh, we want to sing out because God is grand and marvelous and powerful and he, didn't, he, he loves us and He didn't kick us to the curb at His plan for this, this glorious future. And He gives us the resurrection of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We believe it to be true and know it to be true and live knowing it's going to be true for us as well. And so when we sing right now, we want to sing with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength with love to God for this glorious thing that He's brought about. 
But we're also going to have some shepherds down here at the front that if there are some ways that our church can minister to you tonight, this is the time for that to happen. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We'd love for you to come down, talk to them, be prayed over tonight as we stand.